Hi there, and welcome to another Oslo podcast from the 2021 ANZIC CTG meeting from Noosa. Ensuring critically ill patients receive sufficient nutritional support is an ongoing focus for ICU researchers like today's guest, Eliza Miller. Eliza is the project manager for the INTENT trial, which is seeking to explore the role of intensive nutritional support both during and after ICU admission. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Baxter Healthcare, and we're grateful to them for their support in making this podcast possible. Eliza, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Todd. What are the major um, international guidelines currently recommending in terms of energy and protein provision for ICU patients? Yeah, so four clinical practice guidelines uh, do exist, which offer recommendations about nutrition support or nutrition therapy for critically ill uh, adults. And these include the Society of Critical Care Medicine and um, Aspen or the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. Uh, There's a European Society of Intensive Care Medicine guideline, a Canadian clinical practice guideline, as well as a European Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition guideline. And really, um, broadly speaking, uh, the majority of these recommendations advocate that energy and protein be delivered in amounts close to measured or predicted requirements in critical illness uh, over the course of the patient's ICU stay. One of the many complexities in administration of nutrition therapy in critical illness is actually identifying um, each patient's true energy needs or what their energy requirements are. Um, And so there's sort of two approaches really and and one of them, which is the, I guess, the gold standard, if you like, is to measure um, by way of indirect calorimetry um, what a patient's energy requirements are, um, which then allows an individualised energy requirement to be set, um, thereby avoiding any over or under feeding. Um, But as I said, that equipment isn't always available. So the more common approach is to use uh, predictive equations of which there are many available and and they're based typically on age, gender, height, weight, as well as a severity of illness score or factor. And these are used um, to determine a patient's energy requirements. And accuracy does vary significantly uh, from patient to patient. And um, these predictive equations, unfortunately, aren't validated in many of the higher risk population groups that are presenting in uh, critical care units. So um, some of those population groups include the obese, the elderly and and the uh, severely malnourished. Um, So there are limitations to these predictive equations, but they're sort of the best of what's available, really. Um, With regards to protein in critical illness, the the clinical guidelines or the best practice guidelines recommend protein delivery of between 1.2 and 2 grams per kilogram per day for the patient. Um, And despite a lack of definitive evidence in the area, unfortunately, the assumption is that delivery of adequate protein will improve clinical outcomes um, and lead to a mitigation of skeletal muscle wastage, um, which can have on-flow effects in terms of functional recovery and those types of things. In the uh, Aspen guideline, which I mentioned earlier, so the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition guideline, they uh, tend to make recommendations in specific 
uh, clinical conditions or population groups and advocate uh, a higher protein provision than some of those clinical conditions or population groups include burns patients, obese patients or patients presenting with multiple trauma. The best practice guidelines recommend enteral nutrition, which is a form of artificial nutrition. Um, and it's also advocated that this therapy commences within 48 hours of admission to ICU in critically ill, mechanically ventilated patients. Obviously, that's where it is appropriate to do so and within the bounds of the clinical complexities uh, that the patient is presenting with. Um, but there are several practical challenges too with the provision of enteral nutrition. Enteral nutrition delivery can be interrupted for several reasons, including preparation for surgery or a patient going off for some scans. Um, there may be periods of intolerance by a patient um, or even a patient may um, inadvertently remove their, their nasogastric tube that um, would obviously then prevent enteral nutrition being delivered. Um, and indeed, what we know in this field um, from international practice surveys is that critically ill patients typically only receive about half or just over half of their predicted energy requirements whilst they're in ICU, which um, is well below what I'm sure many dietitians and clinicians would hope to be providing to their patients by way of nutrition therapy. And so another uh, strategy that, that may be implemented or that may be more appropriate depending on the patient's condition is to deliver another artificial nutrition product called parenteral nutrition. Um, and this is delivered intravenously, so via a central line, so maybe a PIC line or a, a CVC or something like that. And there's a couple of ways that that can be implemented. So PN can be provided exclusively um, or it can be used as a supplemental strategy, so to support oral intake or enteral nutrition deliveries. The ability, I guess, of um, PN to deliver additional energy and protein to patients um, has been proven in several feasibility and pilot trials, but the benefit on clinical and functional outcomes uh, is presently unknown. So there is a little bit of a gap, um, I guess, in the evidence that's currently available by way of um, the supplemental PN strategy that, that can be implemented and, and the flow-on effects it can have to a patient's recovery. Eliza, I guess we could fairly simplistically divide approaches into standard care and an intense approach to providing nutrients to ICU patients. What does the evidence currently suggest in terms of outcome uh, benefits that patients would see from these strategies? Yeah, so there's um, only really observational data at the moment suggesting benefit when energy and protein delivery is optimised close to requirements. Intent, which we will speak about in a little bit, is um, the, the study that I do project manage along with a fantastic team of other researchers um, and we are investigating for the first time globally the impacts of an individualised intensive nutrition intervention across the entire hospital stay. So implementing that in the ICU and then also uh, following patients out onto the ward and, and really trying to optimise and advocate for their, their nutrition support. Eliza, why do you think that might be? Are there, are there theoretical reasons why the research so far has been unable to provide uh, evidence of benefit? Yeah, so there are several reasons uh, for the lack of observed benefit from these previous randomised controlled trials. Um, and 
there are quite a number of them, and I'll, I'll just sort of list off a few, but interventions um, may have been applied at a time when the patient's metabolism, say, is not in a phase of recovery, so it might just not have been the right time to implement a nutrition intervention. Um, interventions have also typically been of quite short duration, um, and maybe we need something that is really expanded to cover the patient's whole hospital stay rather than just maybe that first week of their stay in ICU. Um, and many interventions have also provided nutrition with a, I guess, a one-size-fits-all approach, um, which may not be appropriate. We know, obviously, that patients are quite diverse in their clinical condition and their clinical trajectory uh, can be quite different patient to patient, um, even if the diagnosis uh, is the same. Um, and many of the previous studies that have been completed have used clinically-focused endpoints like mortality rather than a more reasonable physiological endpoint like muscle health, um, which might be you know, something better that we can focus on that has a more useful um, implementation in the long term for patients. So if we can focus on, on muscle health in patients and, and retaining that muscle health or, or preventing any deleterious losses in muscle health, then maybe that's going to have a more beneficial effect. Eliza, just to pick up on one of those points, which was the, the nutrition ongoing after patients leave the ICU. It's something that we often don't focus on, particularly from an ICU perspective. But what do we know about patients and their nutritional support and nutritional needs following ICU care? Yeah, so little is understood in this area, uh, Todd, and, and um, it's sort of there is a daft of evidence, I guess, or a huge gap in the evidence at the moment in this post-ICU period of hospitali hospitalisation in critically ill individuals. Um, and the other thing, I guess, for many listeners to keep in mind is that when we review the length of stay of critically ill adults in hospital, now, this is, you know, not, a, a again, a one-size-fits-all approach, but the ward stay is quite often a lot longer than stay in ICU. So it's sort of a really interesting concept that we haven't followed patients out onto the ward yet, um, and so it is an important time point to follow and, and could be a potentially, um, you know, rewarding time to implement a nutrition intervention. But of the limited evidence we do have by way of nutrition intake uh, on the ward uh, is that it does remain well below clinical recommendations. And by way of an example, intense chief investigator, Dr. Emma Ridley, uh, did a little bit of work in this or in this area as part of her PhD. And she followed uh, in one of her studies 32 patients out onto the ward. So following following them in that post-ICU period. And it was observed that only 79 and 73% of estimated energy and protein requirements were met. And there was a very big um, degree of variability within these figures. So some patients met as low as 41% of their, their requirements, whereas others did quite well, achieving more than 100% of their requirements. And we don't really understand at the moment why that is. Why do some patients do poor? Why do some patients do really well? Um, are there factors that we um, can easily implement um, in our nutrition care that we're providing in hospitals to these patients to boost their, their um, energy delivery and, and to support them in achieving a more adequate energy intake in that 
recovery period out on the ward. Um, and, you know, there are many, many factors that it can be. It, they can be patient-centred factors such as patients have reduced appetite, um, they, they might not be overly hungry, so um, there might be intolerances, you know, they might have swallowing or chewing difficulties. There can be early satiety, um, particularly if they've spent quite a lot of time in ICU when they've only been fed artificially. Um, it can lead to an early satiety when they do recommence that oral intake but then there can also be system factors that play into it so inadequate food systems in hospitals maybe patients aren't receiving um, you know the right type of meal um, or something like that or they don't like the meal and they keep reporting that to the nurse but maybe the nurse isn't able to catch the dietitian and report that um, and then there are other clinician factors too things like early removal of enteral tubes before adequate oral intake can be established as well so um, there, are, there are several factors that I think play into into why patients possibly don't do very well out on the ward. Um, but then in saying that, there's lots of opportunity then to try and intervene, I think, or understand what we could do better. And certainly Intent hopes to understand more of these factors, when and why they occur, um, and whether an individualised approach to nutrition care can address some of these factors and thereby lead to an enhanced nutrition delivery in this post-ICU period, which could be very important for a patient's longer-term recovery. Eliza, coming to intent, um, what is the uh, the intent that you refer to is the, the first step in a program of research, I guess. What is the primary mission of the intent uh, program? Uh, what are you trying to find out and how have you designed this trial to, to take that first step? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm glad that you said it's the first step in, I guess, the program of research because that's certainly how the nutrition program here at uh, the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Research Centre uh, sees this. But for listeners who don't know about INTENT, INTENT stands for the Intensive Nutrition Therapy Compared to Usual Care in Critically Ill Adults, uh, and it's a randomised controlled trial. And the trial will determine if an intensive individualised nutrition intervention provided over the whole hospital admission or hospital stay increases daily energy delivery from nutrition therapy when compared to usual or standard nutrition care in critically ill adults um, who do present with at least one organ system failure. So we are recruiting quite a sick population of patients um, and they do have to have been in ICU for between three to five days before they fall into that, um, that eligibility time window for us to, to capture them and, and enrol them in intent. Um, now, the intervention that we are studying comprises delivery of an individualised intensive nutrition care strategy from the time of randomisation to the time of hospital discharge or to study day 28. Um, so we, we do censor data up to study day 28, so whichever occurs first in those two time points. Uh, and the aim of the intervention is to deliver energy to between 80 to 100% of a patient's predicted energy requirements at all times, so both in ICU and when patients are out on the ward. Uh, and in ICU, the, the strategy or, or the intensive strategy, I guess, entails the delivery of a previously tested and piloted uh, tailored supplemental 
parenteral nutrition intervention. Um, and so patients in the intervention arm, whenever daily energy provision is less than 80% of their uh, predicted study energy requirement, uh, then they will receive a bit of a top up by way of supplemental PN just to support them and boost them to make sure that we are, we are keeping patients above that 80% energy requirement. So anywhere between 80 to 100% is what we're aiming for. Now, in the later stage of the ICU admission and typically uh, prior to discharge to the ward, although it, that is a bit um, patient dependent, um, so some patients may not move to this uh, more tailored individualised oral intake or oral diet strategy until they're out on the ward. But um, I guess when we shift away from the parenteral strategy, we move to an intervention that's tailored and individualised and, and delivered by an intent dietitian, and that continues out onto the hospital ward. So it may start in ICU at that later stage or commence once the patient's on the ward. And at this stage in the patient submission, um, we're really focusing more on supporting the commencement of and enhancing a patient's oral intake. So patients might continue to receive um, enteral nutrition at that point in time, but the broader idea is to ensure patients continue to receive 80 to 100% of their energy requirements, whether that's through a combination of enteral and oral or moving the patient solely to oral intake. Um, and the comparator, as in the title, is usual nutrition care, which means patients randomised to that arm of the study uh, receive nutrition management or provision in accordance with local protocols at their hospital. Um, and I guess our hypothesis, if we think further, is that in critically ill patients with at least one organ failure, we would anticipate the use of a supplemental PN strategy in ICU and then an intensive nutrition intervention on the hospital ward will lead to an increase in daily energy delivery of about or at least 15% over the entire hospital stay when compared to standard care. Um, so we are looking or hoping to achieve at least a 15% differential between the two groups that, uh, that form intent. It is a multi-centre perspective, unblinded parallel phase two, a randomised controlled trial, which is a little bit of a mouthful to say, uh, but we are looking to recruit 240 critically ill patients from ICUs uh, right around Australia and New Zealand. Patients will be mechanically ventilated, um, and as I said earlier, they, they do have to be between 72 to 120 hours of their ICU stay and have at least one organ system failure. Um, and there's also another key requirement of the patients we are looking to recruit to this study, and that is that they do have to be uh, at a nutritional deficit. Um, so what that means is that in the 24 hours prior to screening the patient um, or prior to the patient entering that eligibility time window, they can't have exceeded 80% of their estimated energy requirements um, from enteral nutrition sources. So we are looking at a very sick group of patients who do look as though they could benefit from nutrition support and, and an intensive nutrition support approach. Um, and our recruitment in, in terms of a study update and where we're currently at, our recruitment commenced uh, 15th of October back in 2018. And we are hoping to complete recruitment later this year or early next year. Um, and as of today, we have 117 patients officially randomised to the studies. Eliza, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and congratulations for getting intent this far and we look forward to hearing the results in due course.
Thanks so much, Todd. Look forward to presenting the results when we have them. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, download the My Osler app from wherever you get your apps or visit oslercommunity.com.